The hour to which the podcast adjourned having arrived, the podcast is now in order. Let's gavel in for this week's State House Takeout with the reporters on top of Beacon Hill at the State House News Service. Here's Sam Doran. Here we are in the depths of the Massachusetts State House, digesting another week on Beacon Hill. And uh, joining us this week, for, for one thing, is Katie Lannon, who's back from a, a trip abroad. Hey, Katie. Hey, Sam. Thrilled to be making my uh, triumphant return to the airwaves, or however it works out. However, the digital digital <laughs> waves. Uh, and Chris Lisinski is also here. Hey, Chris. Howdy. <laughs> We had a couple of busy formal sessions in the House and Senate this week on some important bills. One of the other big threads this week was the status of the governor's ban on sales of vaping equipment in Massachusetts. And Matt Murphy is actually uh, back in our newsroom right now chasing down some of the latest details. And he'll join us in a little bit to talk about that. But in the meantime, Katie, one of the things that you've been covering in depth since almost the moment you started at the news service, is the Foundation Budget Review Commission and all the efforts to uh, uh, bring about reform of education funding plans in Massachusetts. And uh, that big bill made it through its second branch this week. That's right. Just uh, just about a week ahead of the four-year anniversary of the Foundation Budget Review Commission report that you know we've talked about here countless times, and you certainly can't walk around the state house lately without hearing mentioned that report that found that the cost of education is not adequately considered by the state's school existing school funding formula and the the house followed suit with the senate this week and unanimously passed a bill that that aims to fix those uh inadequacies in the formula and so one of the things that we were talking about here on on the takeout uh, when the Senate passed its version of this bill, and, and this bill, of course, had uh, already been agreed to by the House and Senate members of the Education Committee That's before right. it passed up to the chambers. One of the things we talked about when the Senate passed its version was, would any tweaks or changes they made in the amendment process differ too sharply from what the House decided to do in its chamber, and how would that affect compromise talks moving forward? Uh, what did we see come out of that this week? Yeah, well, we to backtrack even before the the House session that went into Wednesday night, we heard Speaker DeLeo say on Monday that he kind of preferred to to hew closer to what had come out of the Education Committee. And somewhat unsurprisingly, or very unsurprisingly, that's exactly what the House did. They made some some minor tweaks. Um, They adopted, I think, four out of 70 amendments. I don't know if that four counts the technical amendment or not, but four or five amendments, we'll say. And in the process, kind of reverted the bill to a closer form than as to what had come out of the Education Committee. They they did away with Senate language that kind of lessened the d- degree of oversight that the state education commissioner would have over these plans that districts will uh, if this becomes a law, be required to prepare detailing how they hope to close achievement gaps. And that's the Pat Jalen Amendment, right? That the the buzzword that we've been hearing a lot is accountability. That's um, right. Yeah. C- could you explain in a little more depth for perhaps the the layman who hasn't followed this in detail um, what folks have meant all week when they've when they've been talking about accountability? Sure. So the the idea, um, you know, that the bill has is 
makes sense that there's going to be a lot of money, $1.5 billion on the table here, new money coming into schools. And a lot of that is targeted for specific purposes, um, particularly the things that are in focus is the money that's going to, to low-income students and, and English language learners. And, and folks want to make sure that money's spent as it's intended. So that's why these districts would have to prepare these achievement gap closing plans. Under the, the Education Committee's bill and under the House bill now, the Education Commissioner would be able to return plans to districts if he thinks they're not in compliance and have them amend them. The, the Jalen Amendment, as you mentioned, as it's kind of being called, the Senate language, would would not give the commissioner the power to order changes. Is that similar to the Rep. Jim Hawkins Amendment that there was um, a little to do over on Wednesday? You could say similar. You could say word for word. Oh, okay. <laughs> All right. Word for word. It's Yeah, it's, the, it's the, same, the same language. And, you know, Representative Hawkins, he ultimately withdrew the amendment. He's a he's a retired teacher himself, and he spoke on the floor before withdrawing the amendment about the idea that it's the the local districts who really know how to serve the kids in their district. You know, the idea that it, it shouldn't be coming from a level removed from the education commissioner's office in Malden. It should be coming from the, the folks who are in the classroom or otherwise working directly with the kids they're trying to help. Sure. And not only had we heard from the speaker earlier in the week about wanting to, as, as you pointed out, adhere more to the original uh, committee bill, um, but the governor had also weighed in on that Jalen accountability language. Yeah, definitely. And there had, you know, if we're if we're going to call it accountability, I, as you say, is oh, the buzzword. Oh. Yeah, That's the, yeah the, no, sh- no, the shorthand. Yeah, is, but yeah. the... Um, the the governor's bill that he filed in January had had even more of these so-called accountability measures. That's a big focal point for him. And of course, he'll be the one who has the some sort of final say, at least, over what ultimately comes to his desk. True. And so that's one of the big differences between the two branches. Uh, any other things uh, of note that they'll have to sort through? That's the big one. Um, so the House did adopt a couple amendments, and I know the, the Senate had more um, that they had done to the bill, and it's when uh, it was their turn earlier this month. But that's that's the main kind of feature we heard uh, this week from Senator Sonia Chang Diaz, of course, uh, a person who has made this one of her major priorities and was the a lead negotiator last session and the Senate sponsor of one of the education bills this year. The House and Senate bills treat the low income rates the same way. And that was not the case last year, last session when talks fell apart. So there, there is some common ground over things that had been uh, an obstacle to resolve in the past. Mm. And there was some more chatter on the Hill uh, on Wednesday, similar to when the Senate was debating this bill, about the sharing of district level projection data. Um, for, for the local school districts and what effect this bill would, would have on them. Um, what, what was going on there? Yeah, similar to how the, the Senate approached this, the House shared numbers with, uh, with individual members kind of about their districts and their communities, but those numbers haven't been publicly released. If you're listening to this and you have any district-level numbers <laughs> that you'd like to share with the news service, you can feel free to shoot me an email. We'd love to see them. We haven't seen them. That's Lannon at statehousenews.com. <laughs> yeah, but we did hear a few representatives on the floor referred to the numbers they've been seeing, 
they've been seeing and they've been shown for their districts. Um, Representative Colleen Gary of Drakeit pointing to the numbers for her district as a, as a reason she was still struggling with her vote during the debate. You know, she sees the nearby gateway city of Lowell poised to really take in a lot more money than her suburban towns who will also see their local contributions go up. So she was worried about that. Of course, she ultimately ended up voting for it, as did all of her colleagues. Well, a unanimous vote there, Katie and Chris, a unanimous vote in the Senate for the supplemental budget bill that would close the books on the last fiscal year. And we talked on the takeout last week, Chris, about the House's consideration of this supplemental budget bill. The Senate tacked on a bunch of amendments, uh, both local earmarks uh, for stuff like police stations and town hall renovations, right on up to policy amendments. And and some of the policy amendments that they considered had to do with uh, the state primary election for next year. What happened with that? Indeed. Uh, So, you know, the original bill that started off in the House included language setting the 2020 statewide primary for September 1st. This is obviously going to be a pretty high profile uh, election with the Senate race between incumbent Senator Ed Markey, his challenger Joe Kennedy and Shannon Liss Riordan, uh, primary race for Kennedy's seat. So a lot of interest in this. And this would be as some lawmakers have pointed out the very first primary in at least a decade to take place before Labor Day here in Massachusetts. Uh, Senators had filed a bunch of different amendments looking to change that over concerns about the effects of having a primary before Labor Day. I think it was Senator Eric Lesser who said that having a primary that early is crossing a Rubicon that could never be undone. Dropping some some real literary references on us here. Yeah, to go back to the days of Julius Caesar. Um, But ultimately, all of those amendments to change it to September 2nd or September 8th ended up being withdrawn because of a compromise that senators reached to uh, hold a September 1st primary and tack on five days of early voting the week beforehand. Yeah, we heard some arguments on the floor, Chris, about um, some of the other things that are going on in the greater Boston area on September the 1st when a lot of leases turn over, especially for uh, college student housing, young professional housing, and um, the roads get kind of congested to bring it all back a few weeks to uh, uh, when we talked about uh, congestion on the roads of Massachusetts. Um, And folks mentioned Alston Christmas even. Or as uh, Senator Becca Rausch put it, Alston Brighton Christmas, to which I have to object and say as a a BU grad, the nomenclature is absolutely Alston and only Alston Christmas. Yeah, I never heard that one before. Well, the Senate followed suit with the House and some of its alterations to the governor's original bill, uh, such as the dependent exemption, uh, fentanyl interdiction. Those are the two big main um, divergences from the the governor's bill and definitely agreement between the House and Senate on those. Sure. So where'd they differ? Uh, You know, well, the September 1st primary date is the same in both as is setting five days of early voting ahead of the 2020 presidential primary, which falls on March 4th. But the language for early voting ahead of the September statewide primary, that was new in the Senate's budget uh, done only through an amendment. The House didn't add that language itself. They also differ uh, not insignificantly on overall spending level. Senate's clocked in at about 50, maybe $55 million higher in total spending than the House's did. So uh, that's going to be something that they're going to have to work out. The biggest and most high profile difference stems back to the fight that we talked about last week on the podcast between some progressive lawmakers in the House and House leadership 
over a uh, uh, change to tax code, basically decoupling Massachusetts from federal tax code to allow corporations to continue to deduct interest. Um, this is something that the House included. Progressive members tried unsuccessfully to change, and as it turns out, the Senate just dropped that language altogether. So uh, now the two branches are at odds over this issue that, uh, that split Democrats in the House. Uh, briefly, Chris, uh, one interesting aside, one interesting moment or vignette from the session yesterday, and this amendment ended up getting withdrawn before it was even voted on, uh, but Senator Dean Tran had an amendment, and he's from Fitchburg, dealing with local government on Cape Cod, which he said was filed at the request of one of his constituents. And the senator from Cape Cod, Julian Sear, got up and uh, had quite a lot to say. Yeah, yeah. Senator Sear really went off on a, a long speech, um, you know, slamming not just this proposal for an amendment, which he said was insulting not only to him, but to Senator Tran, his colleague, uh, for, you know, a business developer in central Massachusetts. Sort of to, using Senator Tran to, to file this right, policy language. Right, right. Uh, but jumped off from there into a, a, a criticism at what he said has been a years-long effort by moneyed and powerful interests to change regulations on Cape Cod and open up the region to their own financial interests at the expense of working families, at the expense of the, the heavy, Im heavily immigrant population on the Cape that makes up so much of that workforce. Yeah, some real sharp remarks from, from Senator Sear, and uh, you can listen to audio of that on the Statehouse News website. You can read a full session summary with our notes from the entire Senate session and the entire House session on Wednesday, um, along with all of our in-depth coverage at statehousenews.com. Uh, Chris, um, following that shameless plug, um, the supplemental budget bill ought to be done right before November 1st in order to properly close the books on the last fiscal year. Um, where do things stand in terms of conference talks or the likelihood of that getting done by that point? Well, November 1st is the hope on paper, at least. The, the state comptroller has an October 31st deadline by statute to uh, to complete financial reporting with closed books. Um, I spoke to uh, Senator Mike Rodriguez, the, the head of the Senate's Ways and Means Committee, basically their bu budget chief, and he said that he's hopeful that they can wrap it up in the next week, but didn't exactly commit to that timeline. Um, we've certainly seen budget makers in both the House and Senate less than concerned about meeting uh, deadlines laid out for them over the past few years. Once again, this year, we were the last state in the nation to have the legislature send a budget to the governor. So it does not appear to be totally unsurprising if we miss another deadline here on this one. All right. Thanks, folks. I'm going to go try to chase down Matt Murphy and we can find out from him what the latest news is on the governor's vaping ban. And hey, Matt, found you. There you are. Here I am. Here Sorry about that, Sam. You caught me in a bit of breaking news. Yeah, and uh, what news broke? Well, we just learned that the uh, Baker administration took steps uh, this morning, actually, to get an emergency regulation in place to ensure that their ban on nicotine vaping products does not lift on Monday uh, after a Superior Court judge on Monday, uh, this past Monday, actually gave them uh, basically a week uh, to comply with his order to uh, pursue these emergency regs, or he was going to lift uh, the governor's first in the nation ban on vaping products. So they've taken that one step. And what were some of his other requirements? They have to hold a hearing, right? Yeah. So if I back up a bit, 
Uh, the governor on September 24th declared a public health emergency and related uh, related to this uh, nationwide outbreak of lung uh, vaping related lung injuries that has hit not just Massachusetts but dozens of other states around the country. And in de- in declaring that emergency, also issued this order or had uh, Public Health Commissioner Monica Burrell issue an order banning uh, the retail sale of all nicotine and marijuana or THC vaping products. This was challenged by the vapor. Technology Association, which represents the vape stores who say they've been uh, financially impacted uh, by this ban uh, to the point that um, some of their members are even being forced to close. And a judge on Monday uh, sided mostly with the, the Vapor Technology Association. And on, on what grounds did uh, Judge Wilkins on Monday uh, make this decision? Yeah, well, the uh, the association basically argued that the governor had overstepped his executive authority and that um, this uh, exceeded his powers under the emergency declaration. Now, the judge said that they were likely to prevail in their case, and he said that the administration really should have pursued this as an emergency regulation, which would have invited a couple things. Uh, so instead of emergency ban, it's an emergency reg. Right. Instead of ordering this four-month ban, these regulations, which by statute are prescribed by the legislature, so uh, the governor wouldn't be doing this on his own or through executive power, but this is a process that's been approved by lawmakers, uh, and it would limit the duration of such a ban to three months instead of the governor's sought four months. Uh, It would require them to produce a small business impact statement, which uh, we saw in his ruling the judge agreed uh, with vape store owners that they have been uh, irreparable harmed by this ban. Uh, you can argue the public health merits of it, but they are suffering financially from it. Sure. Uh, and uh, there would have to be a public hearing. Uh, so the governor ordered the, uh, sorry, the judge ordered the governor to pursue these emergency regs, hold the public hearing, and this ban will end on December 24th, Christmas Eve. Oh, Christmas Eve. You can get some stocking stuffers maybe for uh, Christmas Day. Yeah, Christmas morning. You can you can run right back out to the stores. Huh. Um, and when does the hearing have to be held by? So according to the statutes, uh, the administration has to give 21 days notice before this public hearing to give people time to prepare. Uh, The governor, of course, appealed this Monday decision. So we've been monitoring this all week long. It went into the appellate court uh, where uh, the appeals court judge, who's actually a Baker appointee, uh, sided with the lower court judge against the administration. So uh, we were really down to the wire here on Friday when the governor took the step of calling the public health council together and having them vote on these emergency regs. Uh, The administration says they intend to file these with Secretary Galvin's office on Monday, uh, and then we will go from there. Oh, all right. So 21 days notice to hold this hearing, which I'm sure a lot of people will want to follow. Uh, what's the latest they could hold it if, if the ban expires on Christmas Eve? Yeah, Judge Wilkins' order says this hearing has to happen before December 24th, which is the end date of the ban itself. And state statute, interestingly, appears to provide some language that would allow for the administration to extend uh, the hearing, but uh, we have not yet gotten any uh, clarification on how that might work. So uh, for the time being, it appears that this will be a a three-month ban, uh, and you know we'll wait and see uh, whether or not the CDC or the other federal agencies investigating uh, this vaping health crisis come out with any more concrete recommendations before then, which is what the Baker administration has been uh, waiting for uh, in the first place and is the reason this ban was put in place all along. All right. Thanks, Matt. Thanks for following that for us this week. Thanks, Sam. 
Statehouse Takeout is a production of the Statehouse News Service. And for a daily fix of Statehouse headlines, visit masterlist.com. Masterlist with two S's. Thanks again for listening. See you next week.